America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey everybody, Jacob here with the Daniel 3 Podcast. Sorry that uh been a bit of a lag here with the audio side. I've had a lot of things going on, um, just in my personal life and family and holiday season and, and all that. So and I'm planning on doing an update episode on that pretty soon. But the uh but yeah, so for those who follow the audio uh side of the thing, you're about f- oh, I don't know, five episodes behind on uh what I have over on YouTube. So I do apologize for that. I know there's a lot of you that prefer to listen to the audio side of this things and it was never my intention to leave you hanging. Life just sort of happened. Um so this is a conversation I had with Jack Lloyd. Uh uh, not too long ago, I guess, I guess, uh, um, like a month ago now. Um, this was back during the um, when Liberty Twitter was uh, set uh, ablaze with the conversations about homelessness and unleashing the police, and, and you know the the views that Murray Rothbard had. Dave Smith was involved in in uh, in those you know, little controversies that were happening. And uh, Jack has been on the podcast before, and I decided to bring him back on again to kind of dive into these subjects a little bit. We also, uh, so we talked about that a lot in the beginning. There's a little bit of like just an, uh, an update on things that were going on with my dad and uh, ways in which uh, I, I kind of learned some lessons there about how really screwed up our healthcare system is and how bad the incentive structures are. So, uh, and Jack was really helpful to me during that time. So we talked a little bit about that beginning and then about the, uh, 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 the libertarian view on, uh, you know, our, 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 our views on what, uh, Murray Rothbard's take was and, you know, sort of like where I think I can understand where Dave Smith, Rothbard and others are coming from on this issue, but where I think, and Jack agrees, where, where we think that they're kind of going wrong and we have, we can provide better answers. So, uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Like I said, uh, I'm going to try to rapidly put, uh, the next four episodes out, uh, over the next week, uh, so I can get you guys caught back up and back in sync with the video podcasts, get back into that routine. Um, as always, if you want to get these episodes early, no matter what, um, you can subscribe to the show um, as a Patreon supporter on patreon.com slash biblical anarchy. That's all I have. Enjoy this conversation with Jack Lloyd.
Good evening, everybody. Thanks for uh, tuning in. Uh, I'm Jacob Daniel. This is the Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy Podcast, and uh, thanks for tuning in tonight. Um, before we get going, I wanted to uh, take care of some some plugs and, and just uh, business stuff, I guess. Um, I have something that I've been uh, wanting to start sponsoring in the beginning. It's a product by a friend of mine. You guys have probably seen me uh, talk to him on Reed's show. We have our little capitalist communion uh, little conversation we have between Christians and atheists. Uh, so Will uh, is uh, part of a company called uh, Rabbit Eye Wine, and uh, they sell this really awesome blueberry wine that uh, we're going to be drinking during this capitalist communion episodes. And we got another one coming up this Saturday. Uh, so you'll see us all drinking it there, uh, but it's excellent stuff. And uh, um, just to kind of help him and promote that, uh, I'm going to be drinking it tonight and uh, um, promoting it on the, the show every once in a while too. So uh, you can uh, look that up on the internet. It's pretty easy to find rabbit eye uh, blueberry wine. They got different options. So like, you know, if you're into sweet wine, they got that. They got a like a, a dry one. I got the semi-sweet because I'm like halfway in the middle. I don't like it to be like super sugary, but I also don't like it super dry. So this uh, semi-sweet is a pretty decent balance between the two. Um, also, um, like I announced last week, uh, I did uh, launch a Patreon um, and I've had a few people sign up. So that's great. Uh, if anybody wants to support the show, as little as $5 a month, uh, it's patreon.com slash biblical anarchy, um, you know, just to help me continue to grow the show, um, you know, make it easier to, for me to have the financial wiggle room to to do more episodes and uh, uh, keep doing uh, the things that, that I'm doing, that we're doing together. Appreciate all the support that you guys have given me. Um, and, uh, oh, and for the audio listeners, um, again, you can do, if you just want the audio uh, stuff early, uh, you can go to redcircle.com uh, slash Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy for the audio portion and sign up for $5 a month and you get the early release of the episodes as well. Um, I think that's it. Um, tonight I got a uh, returning guest to the show. Um, I had him on actually, I think he was the first person I started doing live streams with. So he's back now to return uh, for another conversation. Uh, we're going to talk about a few different things tonight, um, but he's been caught up in some, uh, Twitter controversies and stuff as of as of late, so we're definitely going to get into that later in the conversation too. Uh, this this um, this man is one of my favorite libertarians. He's got so much going on. He's a comic book writer. He uh, has a couple of different Facebook pages. Uh, one that's called the Honest Teacher. That's one of my personal favorites. Uh, that's you know just calling out the. Uh, problems of of public schooling and the indoctrination that kids go through, and uh, him and his wife Fo. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with uh, all the great uh, tracks that those those guys have been dropping, especially over the past year, uh, including uh, the uh, Disobey, which is uh, um, one of one of my favorite ones to listen to. Uh, so I'm sure like they do so much. I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple things, but uh, one of one of my favorite Florida man and uh, libertarians, Jack Lloyd. Jack, how are you doing tonight? Good. Thanks, Jacob. I appreciate the kind words. That that was very humbling. So, yeah, I, I'm doing great, and I, I'm. It's kind of wild to think that it's been that long, and just how far you've come since you know, doing that podcast we did a while back. So, I mean, man, I mean, you've really been just impressive with your output and the design elements that you've put into your production stuff. So, I, it's pretty incredible to see your growth. I love it. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. You know, I've. Uh, 
Um, I've always been someone to think that substance is better than uh, style, but you know, it's it's good to have both. Makes it easier for people to to listen to, and and you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm kind of picky that way too. It's like I I can't listen to something that the audio is not very crisp in, um, and uh, uh, or if the, you know, I was very annoyed with my lighting for the longest time, so finally got better lighting, and you know, I I don't have the time to like put a nice. Uh, you know, invest into a nice backdrop or anything. So the green screen is good enough for now. It <laughs> makes it look a little bit better. <laughs> I was just like, yeah, screw it. I'll just, uh, you know, some of it was just me copying Reed. I was just like, yeah. you know, Reed, Reed just puts a green screen behind him. And actually he stopped doing that recently. Um, hmm. Now he just is like, oh, here's like the backdrop of my my room. Um, right. I'm down in my basement. Right. So it's just like, right. it would just be a, uh, a blank, empty drywall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nothing going on. But um, so... Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about first, um, everyone who's following me on Twitter and the podcast, I'm sure is like has followed the situation with my dad. Um, he went to the hospital with COVID back in September and you were one of the first people that reached out to me and like, um, and you did it in a way that was like, and I know you personally, so it helped. And um, so it, it wasn't annoying when you did it. Uh, when, when I'm sure you know what I mean, like when, when someone announces they have COVID, especially mm-hmm. in the Liberty movement, it's like your inbox gets flooded with <laughs> hundreds of people going, you know, here, here's what you need to do. Right. And it's, it, you know, th- that can be a little bit unhelpful. Um, but, but from people, you know, personally, it, it's different. So you, you gave me a lot of information and I wanted to go into, you know, a, a little bit of that tonight. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go like super far into it, but um, and I would do want to respect my dad's privacy a little bit, but, um, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit, like one of the things that, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've had experiences before COVID that, um, made me a bit more, I guess, like distrustful of our healthcare system. Um, and, and those came out even, uh, more in this experience that I went through with my dad. So, you know, maybe you want to share some of the things that, you know, offhand and I can, you know, uh, maybe like, you know, follow up with like the things I personally experienced, but like some of the ways in which that, you know, the, the, the healthcare industry right now is sort of dropping the ball when it comes to like, uh, providing, you know, good healthcare to people who, who get, who get the, uh, the, the the cookie virus. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, when it comes to the like overarching view of, of what's going on in, the American healthcare system. And I think that this is often, you know, a common point of criticism too, especially when people try to talk about universal healthcare or state subsidized healthcare, they're often point to how terrible things are in America and say, look, see your, you know, capitalist system has failed. You know, people are paying all these exorbitant prices and it's, you know, it's easy if you just look at the superficial to just look at that and say, oh my gosh, it's so terrible. You know, the markets, it's, it's horrible. Right. But obviously if you take some time to actually just look behind the superficial and look at the history of the cronyism and the like, you start to realize that the entire system is, is rigged up by the state and especially in favor of many different lobbying interests, many crony interests. And, you know, this goes way back into the, you know, early 20th century, moving away from community doctors where people would uh, actually hire a doctor for a group, like almost like, um, you could say unionized or like based on a certain uh, practice, like guild and things like that, they would hire a a primary physician, a care physician who would work with the group and they would all pay him directly. And then that physician would have very close relationship with those people. Um, You know, 
the reviews among them, of course, would be shared. So they'd know, hey, is this guy good? Any issues? Like you'd have a lot of great direct feedback. And then with the American Medical Association and uh, lobbying efforts that came after to break up that type of relationship, um, the, you know, there was more cronies trying to push uh, accrediting bodies to control what doctors did instead of having more autonomy and be able to do th- these these types of direct deals. That and um, you know different types of insurance and, and healthcare regulations started to separate the doctor from the patient and their you know medical autonomy. And I would say you know, by and large, this has been done to favor certain crony pharmaceutical corporations where they wish to be able to control what doctors prescribe, guarantee that their paychecks are aligned and, and filled out, whether it's it's by the doctors complying with guidelines from centralized bought off boards or you know the government directly subsidizing it by buying all kinds of medicines, you know, outright or shots. And we saw that here again, the government subsidized it majorly and and governments around the world entered into contracts with major pharmaceutical companies uh, in order to secure a certain large number of doses of the shots. So these types of incentives at play, you know, really affect the quality of care and they affect the costs of care and of course of of medical uh, interventions, the more so that people are being pushed onto insurances and third-party providers and government regulations and having to have X, Y, and Z, you know, bureaucrats to manage all the paperwork. I mean, it, it really adds up. And I think more than ever, people are starting to come to realize this outside of maybe those crunchy circles that, you know, you typically see with like the health people, you know, they'll see, you know, sometimes they might have some like dreads and stuff like that, or, you know, they wear kind of like hippie clothes and you need to think like health nut kind of people, but it's, it's really started to drift out of those circles uh, in terms of the uh, awareness of just how corrupt these organizations are and how much they are willing to work with politicians to secure uh, their position, line their pockets, you know, on, on tax money. And of course not provide a real solution, right? Because that's the whole thing is if you can solve the problem, well, you don't need to keep getting the drugs are giving you. And that ties in the drug war as well, right? The drug war was also a part of preventing solutions that might be cost effective or more readily available. You can make it at home kind of thing. So there's a, a wide body of history behind all this. And you know, I'm simplifying it in many ways, but it, it's just kind of the idea here is that we're facing a huge revolving door uh, with all the regulatory agencies uh, in the United States government as to some of the largest pharmaceutical you know, companies in America, you can think Merck, Pfizer, and the, and the like. And um, and until you really recognize that, it can be hard to understand that this is not about you know uh, people rejecting the health and and rejecting ways to make their lives better. This is rejecting the government trying to force medical procedures on people and to immunize legally the manufacturers who produce these things, as you know happened with the uh, certain you know shot act in '86, uh, where manufacturers are legally immunized and the government has a special master's court where injury issues are taken um, and, you know, essentially make it so that, you know, these people can just do whatever they want really. And truly they can, they can get away with literal murder because the government, um, you know, through their connected cronies is either bankrolling them and, or uh, giving them special legal privileges that keeps them from being able to be held responsible for the harms that uh, they have cause for for many people. So, um, you know, hopefully that kind of encapsulates it. I know I just said a lot, but, you know, that ties all the way into now and what is happening uh, with the shots and, you know, what has happened specifically with the focus on shots over preventative 
care and trying to take care of your health to reduce symptoms or hospitalization otherwise. So they were trying to sell their solution, you know, state subsidized with the shot. Yeah. And you know, that's like so, so much like so my, my dad first got sick. That was like the entire focus was, you know, did, did, did he have the shot or not? And, and, and there was nothing, you know, that the, he got a positive test and he was told to get home and rest. There was no, you know, it was kind of like, oh, you didn't get the shot. And it was almost like the entire way through his journey from, you know, getting sick to now. It was like because he didn't have the shot every time a doctor or a nurse or even just like, the, you know, you know, random people that were asking how he was doing. Um, it was like I, I got really tired of that question. A lot of times I just wouldn't answer. But then it was like, well, kind of not answering gives them the assumption of what the answer is anyway. <laughs> so it was like, you know what, like, you know, I'm not going to hide. You know, no, he didn't. He didn't. He was not vaccinated. Um, now, actually, and this this uh, is funny. I remember when I, I put this out there, uh, the loser brigade was accusing me of making it up, but it's not a lie. Um, mm -hmm. His doctor actually told him that he should wait to get the vaccine. Because my dad has a certain blood condition and they were like, you know, until we get some more studies on this, you should maybe wait, not get it on the the first initial, you know, wave. And it's like, you know, that's that's a reasonable uh opinion, especially for like, you know, this was his personal doctor. Mm -hmm. right. You know what I mean? So it's like, you know, if your personal doctor is maybe is saying, you know, maybe you should wait. But of course it's like, you know, everyone's just like, no, you must, you know, it's this is this is how you were accepted into society. This has nothing to do with it. It almost has nothing to do with health. It's just like, do you, you know, the, the, the shot is less about any benefits it gives you and more about like, are you one of us or are you one of them at this point? Mm -hmm. um, but the, the way he was treated by doctors and nurses, especially when they found out he wasn't vaccinated was incredibly uh, condescending. And it almost felt like at times that uh, their knowledge of his vaccination status um, made him less of a, pr a priority to, hmm. to the, the, you know, the, the, uh, as far as like the patients that they had there. Um, and there was other things too that were affecting. I mean, one of the major things I realized early on, um, although it was hard to realize anything because they don't let anybody in the hospital. If anyone's died, if someone's diagnosed with COVID at my hospital, you can't go in to visit them, period. Um, and you're allowed one visitor if it's uncovid related, but we had to handle all this over the phone, but we realized very quickly early on how short staffed they were because about like a week in when you realize that, like you were talking to the same people over and over again. And it's like, Hmm. And a hospital that as big as the hospital that mine is, and like my County is not like a hugely populated County, but it's, it's not small. Like, I mean, it's, it's a pretty well populated County. It's a pretty sizable hospital, uh, but you realized how badly short staffed they are when, uh, uh, you know, like every day you're calling in talking to the same people almost. <laughs> um, and, and like, we'd call and have to wait for calls back. Cause like they were just busy making rounds and stuff. And, and every update was rushed and, and it was just this whole problem exacerbated by, well, by a lot of things. There's probably economic pressures going on. Uh, and there were shortages before the the vaccine happened in the healthcare industry um but you know this was especially like this was at the height of like uh where you know nurses were being called out as one of the uh groups of people in america that were refusing to get vaccinated like you know uh, i don't, I don't want to say the most but but you know higher than than other groups or at least higher than what was expected 
Um, and so a lot of, a lot of them are getting laid off or, or, you know, just refusing to come to work when it was like, you have to get the vaccine or you can't come to work. And so they would just quit. And, and, you know, so it's like, it's a pandemic and we have shortages, but we're going to lay off nurses. It's like <laughs> that, 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 that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they so they were short staffed and that, that played a huge role into it too. Uh, you know, one of the things you warned me about early on, uh, and like all the, the messages you sent me was a particular drug that I'm really bad at the pronunciation. It's like red, red, red smear or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, which they were obsessed about giving him this one drug. So I'm sure there's some kind of, uh, you know, like you were talking about in your, your opening explanation, there's, there's gotta be some kind of money thing behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that was like the treatment that they were the most convinced that they, they wanted to give him. Right. Um, and you know, none of the things, you know, I had, I had the doctors pushing back at me to give him vitamin D supplement. <laughs> it was like, huh. I, it's like, it's a zero. That's like, you know, how, how hard is it to add a, a vitamin D drip or whatever they would do to supplement? You know what I mean? Like, like mm-hmm. it, it's like a zero cost, zero risk proposition. And it was like, no, we can't do that. Oh, but crazy risky drug that's being reported with a lot of bad side effects that right. we have to give him. Right. <laughs> Not to mention my dad has a, uh, like I talked to his personal uh, doctor with my stepmom. He has a history of vitamin D deficiency. And mm-hmm. the doctor had already been dis- prescribing him to take vi- vitamin D supplements. Wow. But, uh, you know, none of that mattered. It was like, you know, vi- vitamin D doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And, pr- uh, um, proning proning was the thing that that practically saved his life because i could hardly get them to do anything but um he he took a turn for the worse in the uh in the middle of october Mm -hmm. and it was because they had been proning him at first because i had been insisting on it and then i stopped for a while because they they they, the the doctors and nurses were literally saying yeah the proning's helping him Mm -hmm. so after like a week of that i stopped being as insistent about it i was like okay cool they they see the proning's helping him uh, you know, it, it's a lot of work to call and wait on the phone for an hour to talk to somebody mm-hmm. to then be like, please do this. And they go, oh yeah, we're doing it. So like mm-hmm. at some point there was like, you know, just like natural trust that like, oh, the doctors will keep on doing what's good for him. Right. And then he took a turn for the worse and, uh, you know, it, it hadn't occurred to me that they had stopped proning. And so mm-hmm. I just asked, I was like, so, uh, is he currently, you know, proned right now or when are you guys going to prone him again? Because like, they were talking to us about like, hey, he's on the max ventilator settings and um, he's like not getting better. And if he gets worse, we don't know what to do. And then when I, I brought up the, the proning, they were like, uh, no, he hasn't been proned in four days. And I was like, oh my God. Wow. I was like, like, I don't want to say correlation is causation, but, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you were doing something and he was getting better, then you stopped and he tanked. It shouldn't no, take, shouldn't take, you know, like you would think people with medical degrees wouldn't need, you know, a mechanic to be calling at them and, and harassing them to, <laughs> to, to, to figure out what the right move was to, to, to and it was them going back to the proning. Um, and then for some reason they didn't want to, like, they were complaining about the proning because it was like, well, it's a lot of work to turn him over. He's got the tube down his throat for the ventilator, all the things hooked up and, yeah. you know, which were short staffed. And it was like, okay, I get that. Like, I understand yeah. it's not as easy. Like he's dead weight. He's in a medically induced coma. It's not like the easiest thing in the world. I I, I realize that, right. but um, 
it needs done. And I was like, I was like, what are the cycles you're doing? They were like, oh, we're doing like, you know, six to eight hours prone and then like, you know, 16 on his back. And I was like, why don't you just prone him longer? Right. And they were like, there was no good. Like they tried to give me answers for why they didn't want to prone him for more than eight hours. But it was like, there was no explanation other than, well, it's just, you know, there's no official CDC recommendations on how long to prone for. I was like, yeah, wow. <laughs> I was it's like, I was like, so uh, I, I, I held back, but like the response yeah. I had at my in my mind at that time was, does the CDC have recommendations on how many time times to wipe your ass when right. you uh, take a shit? Because right. if they don't, how do you know what to do? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. just crazy, and I think there's this weird veneer around doctors that like you think they're intelligent people, mm-hmm. but my experience through this and I had a, a similar experience with my daughter years ago before she had something else, but she almost died because of uh, negligence on doctors and nurses mm-hmm. part. Um, I'm starting to think that, you know, doctors are are not often the brightest. They're, they they just have spent a lot of money on a lot of education, but <laughs> that doesn't, that does not correlate to uh, smarts. If anything, I feel like, you know, as I've become more libertarian and I'm starting to analyze it through this lens, it's like I almost feel like what gets you through uh, a lot of our education um, programs, especially ones that the state's heavily involved in, mm-hmm. is not how smart you are, is not how uh, in- intuitive you are or creative you are or good at problem solving. It's how obedient are you and how good are you at just doing uh, uh, like conforming to the propaganda we give you. Right. Which are not really good traits for a doctor, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you there in terms of, you know, what is typically expected of people in medical school today, from my experience in a few, you know, places. Um, you know, my mom, she's been technically an LPN, like a nurse since she's like, you know, licensed in 17. And so I've had a lifetime of like stuff with, knowing stuff from her. My dad had a master's in health science. Um, when I was in school, both undergrad and grad school, I had roommates who were in PharmD, who were in medical school, like many, you know, many of them actually. And I got to, you know, talk to them about their stuff, you know, see what they were reading about, have discussions, you know, of course, of seven years of post, you know, secondary education. So I got to see, you know, quite a bit of things, you know, you know, across my, uh, my learning independently in, in college and uh, in my uh, law degree program. So, yeah, I mean, by and large, what I saw there, and you know, from also talking to other doctor friends who went to you know places like NYU Med School or UM Med School, a lot of it is just memorization. It really is about how good you are at memorizing. Yes, there's you know some things that will require some thinking or memorizing processes, but by and large, it really is regurgitation. You know, you're, you're, you're memorizing just a lot of different facts, processes, you know, biological processes and, and things like that. You know, maybe a little bit of math, you're doing the chem stuff or orgo. Um, but it, you know, it, a lot of it is just really how good are you at repeating what is known? You know, that is the, the most commonly, uh, you could say consensus approved scientific facts. How, how good are you repeating those things by and large to get into, um, uh, you know, med school and, and then do the same, you know, for all those years and then through residency and, and critical thinking is a separate field. It's its own, you know, 
discourse and, and learning when it comes to reason and, and logic and fallacies and, you know, Raven analysis, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, by and large, you know, a lot of doctors these days are, are just, they were good at memorizing and they were good at regurgitation and that's what got them through. I mean, and of course, that's what will get you your degree is if you're able to memorize enough to pass the MCAT and then, you know, pass your boards. So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, a lot of doctors are just, you know, whatever they hear from their body, from the uh, you know accrediting body, American Medical Association or CDC, they just check that and regurgitate it. And of course, it's not all doctors, but a, a large enough contingency for it to be a real problem for a lot of people who actually want their doctors to think and not just be like, oh, let me slap on a, you know, a, a, a remedy that's really just treating the symptoms and not holistically fixing the underlying solution. Or the underlying yeah. And it and it's it's weird, and I, I'm sure there's other factors at play. But one of the correlations that I've noticed is that the doctors who are less specialized and 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 people in the medical industry who are less propagandized are typically like better healthcare uh, administrators, like like d deliverers of healthcare. You know what I mean? Like nurses, the nurses were way more helpful than the doctors typically, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, like our personal doctors, just like the ones that I go to for like my, my personal family, my dad's personal doctor, um, and, and stuff like that, they seem a lot more reasonable than the ones that are like, you know, more specialized or working in ICUs and hospitals and stuff. And for them, it's, it's like less about using your mind and more just about like, you know, oh, well, it's like, it's, a, it's like a hyper focus on what do the studies say and what does the CDC say? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that studies have no merit. Like I'm not saying that right. I want a doctor who hasn't read any studies. Of course, studies are an important pro uh, part of the scientific method and the process of advancing medical uh, science and knowledge. But, you know, epidemiology studies are just like there. There's a good episode on the Joe Rogan podcast where he had a, uh, uh, it was actually a, a debate over veganism and and the, the merits of a vegan diet. Uh, yeah. But uh, I forget the name of the doctor who who wasn't a, a a vegan. But but he he did a really good job of breaking down the uh, the problems with problems with epidemiology studies, which is that like they they're they're not like you know because and I think most people intuitively know this, or at least I think mm -hmm. most you know reasonable people do. But like you can go on Google and find a study that will support almost any claim. And that's because, you know, a, a study is sort of like a very weak test of correlation. And it's like, it, you know, I mean, even well done studies will typically just be like, you know, we, they'll try to take into effect other factors, but it's hard to produce a test that is accounted for all possible factors. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, people will be like, oh, there was a 40% increase based upon X. So it's like, okay, well, are there other things you didn't factor for that could have contributed to that increase? And unless the correlation is, you know, substantial, like, you know, uh, at least over 50%, ideally over a hundred percent or more, you know, that like, Oh, you did this. And then suddenly, you know, a huge increase in this result that you were uh, testing, you know, a, a hypothesis on, you know, like that, that might say something, but when people go like the, the one in this, uh, I, I wish I remembered their names. Uh, in this Joe Rogan podcast, they were debating over uh, if, you know, eating meat led to like a higher risk of heart disease. And mm -hmm. it was like, 
and the, the vegan doctor kept going like, oh, well, eating meat shows like a 10% increase in cholesterol based upon all these studies. It's like, okay, like it's 10%. Like mm-hmm. there are many other factors not accounted for in these studies that could have uh, attributed to why there was a 10% uh, difference. It could have been a healthy user bias. It could have been, uh, you know, g- genetic uh, uh, variables in people that just naturally through their um, what they've inherited have different cholesterol levels. There's a lot of things that like right. are, are you know, it, it, it's medical studies are harder to perform than I think most scientific experiments. Cause like the problem with like, you know, other science, other fields of science, you can almost do a good job of controlling most of the variables. Mm-hmm. Medical science is like 90% of your variables are what people do. And there's not a lot of like you can do your best, you can put forth your best efforts, but um, you can't like completely flatten the variables across a group of human beings. Um, it, it's just quite hard. It's the same reason why central planning is 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 impossible is because of how varied humans are. And so I think it's just there's so many people that just put like such an overemphasis, I think, on you know, the, the results of, of epidemiology studies and rather than like those should be part of a critical analysis of pursuing the truth. Like, I'm not saying like, you know, we should abandon, you know, you, uh, the scientific method and studies, but like you have to contextualize them and, and use them as data for trying to think critically about what the truth is rather than just like, you know, reducing everything down to just a, a, a numbers calculation because I, th- I think that doesn't work in in the, in the medical industry. Right. I mean, I agree that by and large, when it comes to, to these types of studies involving human test subjects, you always just have to look at what they controlled for. Um, even just one you know, silly little thing that I saw in um, a, a, a trial where there was, uh, you know, the the word that i can't say being experimented you know with with uh with two different groups and in their uh trial the group that had um been not given that shot had a higher body mass index but typically across the people that had a higher body mass index median um than the group that had been given a shot and it's this is not you know in any way accounted for in the study. They they just mentioned it when they did their demographics of you know the, the participants. But when you, th- you know what I mean little things like that, if you don't look for those kinds of things, you might be like, wait a second, you're trying to say this was marginally safer, but you you these people are significantly less healthy and more at risk. So you, you know what I mean you're not, you're comparing apples and oranges on this very critical factor, which is one of the big factors for those who actually have hospitalization or. Um, you know, death, you know, resulting. Jack, from- but Jack, using critical analysis to be skeptical of people's truth claims is unscientific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. These days, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, that's the gaslighting, right? They, they want to deny yeah. that you should even want to get the skills to think through these things or even want to, you know, read through stuff. And, and to me, I just, I just find it so comedic because these same people be like, Oh yeah, if you didn't go to public school, you're dumb. Or you know, you need to go to college. And it's like, well, what was the point of all that, right? You can't, so you're saying, oh, you have to go to you know school, and then you have to go to college where you're supposed to learn how to read studies. Like even the you know liberal arts majors, you know, the, we're not getting science degrees, still get some type. It's in some level in their you know courses that are the, the electives. 
some type of generic thing where you're like looking to the basics of you know reading scientific studies. Like there's going to be typically a science elective within your your core course for liberal arts majors. So it's like that you know this is all part and parcel of the things that they're selling. That oh yeah, see this is how you get smart. And then it's like oh okay, I got my degree. I understand at least how to read studies. You know to a degree, I can I can look at it and read through it. And it's like no, don't do that. Don't you know we you know don't do that now. But yeah, you need you need to go to public school. You need to go to college in order to be smart and to, to do well. But oh, don't don't start using those skills that you're supposed to have from it. You know, so it, it's really you know, hypocritical. It's it's all just a lie and gaslighting everybody about the, the nature of it, which is just to get everybody addicted on government dependency. So, yeah, yep. Well, that's a um. You know, we could talk about this for hours, but I, I, I there, there's so much that could go on there. I do want to get to the other subject we have for tonight and. Uh, so, so the, the talk about government dependency is maybe mm-hmm. a good segue into the, the second subject we wanted to talk about, which is, um, you know, Liberty Twitter blew up over the last few weeks. And I don't I don't even know exactly what started it. Um, I, I haven't traced that back to the epicenter. Mm-hmm. Um, but but at some point, everybody on on Twitter uh, in the libertarian circles, at least we're talking about, um, you know, what to do with vagrants and and homeless people like maybe in society broadly but like Mm -hmm. especially in public areas like parks um and people were quoting like the murray rothbard quote um Mm -hmm. during like the more paleo uh days late of of late rothbard where Mm -hmm. he had that piece about like right-wing populism and unleashing the police for Mm -hmm. both like uh, there was like one point that was about muggers and and rapists and, and you know, violent criminals, and then there's one that was like get all the bums and vagrants <laughs> off the streets too. Um, so, um, so people started talking about that. You got into it with some people, including Dave Smith, uh, which led to a little bit of blowout there. Um, you know, which you know, it's always like Liberty Twitter is so frustrating because like. I'm friends with so many people and then it's like people will start fighting each other. And I'm just like, no, I love you both. Please stop. <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. like, it was like, it was like, it was, but although you, you, you made a really funny joke though, when, when uh, Dave blocked you, you were like, I guess I was part of the problem, <laughs> which was, you know, so problem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Which is like, yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I, I love Dave. Uh, Dave is, you know, one of the ones that, uh, actually helped get me into libertarianism when I was on the left, um, right. you know, and, you know, he's good on a lot of issues. I understand where he's coming from on this one. And uh, so there's like, I, I share your perspective more on this issue, although I understand where Dave is coming from. Um, I, I do think and I talked about this on a podcast I did on Sunday night on the We Are Libertarians Network. I was like, mm-hmm. this is definitely an issue that is harder to persuade people like, it, like this is not an issue that I would maybe choose as the first one to talk to like my normie status friends about. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you don't understand the problem with the police and you don't understand mm-hmm. the problems with central planning and you don't understand libertarian principles, the, the, the hill to die on might not be, um, or we need to let, you know, in areas like LA where there's a lot of homeless people, you know, who are, doing various things out of them using drugs, leaving needles mm-hmm. around, creating very unsafe, you know, uneasy, potentially hazardous um, uh, environments in areas that are meant for kids. Um, it might be hard to win that battle 
um, as opposed to other battles that, are, you know, are maybe less emotionally charged and and that people might be more amenable to. So um, and, and and Dave was kind of like making two points. And, and one of them was sort of that, which is like, oh, this is where libertarians lose people, because <laughs> if you're going to die on this hill, people aren't going to listen to our ideas. And it's like, well, maybe I, I'm certainly someone for being strategic and a little mm -hmm. bit pragmatic in like when we're talking to people who don't share our ideals, there's, there's a time and place for maybe like dying on that hill and sticking to our principles. Um, but like on one-on-one -on -one conversations with like, especially like if I lived in an area with, with that issue and I had neighbors and stuff and they were talking to me about that, you know, I, I might not pick that moment to, you know, mm -hmm. explain why, 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 you know, that issue is it's like there, there's a lot of i think easier ways to uh better topics to to, to pick if you're going to talk to people about the problem with the police and the problem with uh using the state to solve a problem that's one where i think people are going to be emotionally walled off to your explanation even if you're correct um and so it can be uh you know, but you, you got every situation is different. So you kind of have to play it by ear. Um, but but I do think um, where I agree with you and wanted to, to get into this a bit more, um, you know, I, I think the problem is and I'm going to get your, your response to this. Dave, I think that the, the error Dave is making and I tried to challenge him on this and he said, no, I don't think this is the case. Um, but but according to my math, I think it is. I think in the areas where homelessness is a problem and we have to start there, I think, because like it's not a problem in every county or in every state. Like where I live, we don't have a homelessness problem. You know, mm -hmm. I, I can't recall every single homeless person at any of our public parks. So this is basically a non-issue. We're talking about like maybe a, a couple dozen states and specifically, I think, you know, a handful of counties and cities where this is a huge problem. So it, it it is not like this widespread all over the you know yeah. all, all over the country you know this problem exists equally it's hyper concentrated in specific areas, um, in the areas where this is a problem, I don't think that even if you were going to like if you one thing if you said oh all we have to do is send like a cop or two, and the the you know they don't have to do anything they just show up and the homeless people leave it's like okay well in that hypothetical situation maybe I just wouldn't care but um. When we're talking about, let's say, L.A. County, which is the county I've been uh, deriving my math from because it's the easiest example. We're talking about at least 70,000 homeless. And those are, I think, conservative statistics, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, you know, using using raw kind of like, you know, lowball numbers, we're talking about like 70,000 uh, plus homeless people in a uh, I forget how big L.A. County is. It's like between five and ten square um um or between uh, i forget I, I i should have had i had this stuff written down in yeah. the sunday podcast now i'm going on memory population county it, in terms of the the population yeah it, it, yeah but it's um it's a big county it's a lot of people it's got like at least seventy thousand homeless and there's only about like ten thousand active just like on patrol on duty cops uh then if, if you add and then like if you want to add sheriffs and other levels of law enforcement that typically aren't really going to be your on duty driving around in the cop cars people like we could double that and say like it's about 20,000 okay like so the problem is like we're talking about like even if all the cops were supposed to do is keep the homeless people out of parks there's like you know the, the homeless people outnumber the cops by a significant uh factor mm -hmm. and 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 the truth is well we know that 
the police are not going to just focus on this one issue. They're also doing a lot of other things, a lot of which we we all agree are bad. Um, right. So we're talking about then, uh, and this is why social, you know, socialized security sucks because it'll get weaponized in ways you don't want it to be, and it's a, a very inefficient uh, distribution of resources. Um, and so, yeah, you're talking about a small if. So inevitably, if you made a major plea, uh, we need to solve this homelessness problem by invoking the power of the uh, the state or county police. They're going to go up. Oh, we need more funding. We need more personnel. Uh, we're probably going to need more SWAT teams. We're going to need more, te- you know, what I mean, more tear gas, more. We're going to have to, you know, we're probably going to have to install permanent, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, on-site facilities and uh, maybe perimeters and stuff. And it's like, you know, I don't feel comfortable with that, you know, especially after two years of lockdowns where people are being arrested for leaving their houses and people arrested for taking their kids to parks just to play and looking at what's going on in Australia. It's like, um, you know, maybe this is not a a good time. I mean, there's never a good time, but maybe this is an especially bad time to be proposing ideas that would be easily weaponized by the state to increase the size of and the scope of power of the police. Um, so that's, that's my thoughts. Um, if you want to go ahead, respond to that and give your thoughts too, we can get into this more. Sure. So I think uh, when it comes to the discussion about parks and the homeless and the like, I think it's just really important to contextualize it all uh, in reality instead of abstractions. Because a lot of times when people talk about issues, they get into policy fantasy where they're saying this is how it could be or this is how it should be, and they don't really actually have any power to do that. You know what I mean? It's it's not in their control, right? You can sit there and say, man, I wish the police would just not hurt anybody for victimless crimes. Wouldn't that be great? But you, you don't have control over the police. You, you know, you're, you're not the sheriff. You're not the police chief. You're not the mayor. You're not one of the you know city council members who like knows everybody and can get bills passed or whatever. So a lot of this stuff is, is really just political fantasy that doesn't actually apply to most people who just like what's in my power and what can I change? And for me, when I responded to him initially, my focus was on privatization, the concept um, and choosing alternatives. And the reason why I talk about these things is that choosing alternatives is something within someone's control, right? You don't have to pass a bill. You don't have to lobby. You don't have to, you know, slush fund some politicians campaign in order to say, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else, right? That's a hundred percent right now in your, in your zone. You could say, I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to choose to spend my time and resources in a place that is less sketchy, whether it's a friend's backyard, uh, you go to a friend who has an apartment complex with a playground, you go to a private park, you go to Chuck E. Cheese, you go to just something else. Like basically that's what it boils down to is, is you, you can choose that that's in your control. And, you know, you get the usual like, oh, well, someone's too poor. They can't afford it. It's like, well, that's nonsense because if you're too poor, then you have serious other issues to work on, right? But go, when they go to public park, if you can't afford to like, oh, I can't take my kid, you know, down the street to Chuck E. Cheese. Well, you know, you're, you probably have serious structural financial issues, home life issues that, you know, way more need to be dealt with than whether or not you get to go to a public park versus going to, you know, your neighbor's dead end and, you know, play stickball or basketball or, you know, tag. So to me, this, you know, that, that stuff's kind of just, just silly, really. It really is, is a silly thing to not just recognize, oh yeah, you know, that, that, that's in my control. I, I can choose that, right? You don't have to ask permission to choose differently. Now, when it comes to the privatization thing, 
um, you know, we, they try to say, well, is that not feasible? Is that less practical? And I just, I sit here and laugh because they're like, you know, oh, we'll just abolish qualified immunity, which is a Supreme Court set standard, right? This is not the federal government that passed the law. It is not a state government passed the law. The Supreme Court of the United States created at a judicial fiat. So it ain't going anywhere anytime soon unless the Supreme Court overturns itself, which they started to do a little bit in a recent case that, you know, I could talk at length about is, you know, a jail cell issue, but it's it's not going anywhere. So people talk about practicality as a lawyer. I, I chuckle because these are the kind of things that, you know, you hear people saying, you're like, and I'm just like, yeah, this is how come attorneys still get lots of money because you have no idea what you're talking about. Right. When it comes to, it comes to these kind of issues, it's like, yeah, you want to talk about practicality. That's, that's, that's not changing unless you get a Supreme Court case going up. So when I talk about privatization, there's a real thing. And actually, John Stossel, I don't know if you saw the video today, but he just released a video, private versus public parks today. <laughs> he did a whole special talking about how Bryant Park is privately managed in New York City and how everybody wants to go there. Because back in the 80s, this philanthropist guy was like, hey, New York City, I want to run this privately. I'm going to make this amazing. And he used monies from private persons, no taxpayer money, not nothing, to help renovate the park, bring in businesses, make it profitable, and make everything beautified because it incentivized people keeping it clean. And he came up with creative ways to like really make people want to keep it clean by having like new trash cans and keeping the bathrooms like clean 30 times a day, having private security guards, ooh, private security. So boogeyman, like, like that can't exist, right? You know, private security guards actually helping to patrol and keep things but without escalating violence. And they said that, you know, sometimes they get homeless people, but they said, if the homeless people are otherwise respectful, not causing disturbance, they don't care. They said, sometimes they get some cracked out people. And you know what they do? They go up to them. They say, Hey, you got to go. You know what I mean? If they're bothering someone or doing something, this is real. Like this is not like some fantasy, you know, imaginary thing. This is a real thing to move toward privatization. And as much as school choice is a real thing, it's something you can actually advocate for, whether it's a gradualism of private management or you move to, you know, selling, auctioning off or something of that nature, divesting it and having it become, you know, privatized and people getting, you know, restitution and, and monies from an auction or whatever. So to me, I'm just sitting here like, this is stuff that you can go Google on Mises Institute. Like I was posting up stuff I'm like this is, I'm not like, you know, just shooting the whatever. I'm literally posting Mises content on private parks and how to desocialize the commons. Like, foundational stuff 101 this is not controversial in the austrian school of thought or in the libertarian school of thought and it's like oh my god that's not practical it's it's so practical it literally is something you can advocate now now in the reality of what you can do if you're doing political stuff i mean you have the option to run for office you can lobby you can try to get a ballot initiative you can do all kinds of things if you don't like the political stuff work together to open up a community park Right, you can have a, a corporation for profit or not for profit. Buy the land, turn it into something that people want to use. That's very real world and practical, and people do that all the time because they build amusement centers for people, or they build, you know, shopping malls that have beautiful atriums, or they have really nice, you know, playgrounds for kids that you can play at while you go shop. So th to me, this is all something that should be normal if you're, you know, somewhat out in the world, like and you actually go to parks and you go out to shopping malls and stuff on a semi-regular basis. But it, I mean, maybe if you've been locked down in New York for a long time and don't know what that's like at all, you see your homeless people and, you know, <laughs> Cuomo, you know, raping everybody. I mean, I guess you could, you might miss that. But to me, it, it's something that needs to be demonstrated to people so that they actually have a concrete example of this. And I think John Stossel's video, I mean, I swear I didn't call him up and, you know, say, hey, make this video. He, he just happened to release it. And it, it's a 
one of those powerful narratives to help people say, oh, okay, there is a there is a reasonable like way to do this where we can have amazing parks that people enjoy. And there's, you know, market incentives for people to provide food to people and to have amazing, you know, classes and stuff and outdoor yoga and Zoom and all this stuff. So, it, you know, this it's not something that is like impractical or just not possible. It just takes some work. It takes some creativity creativity but it's 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 not something that is you know out of touch and the thing that bothers you know me the most in terms of the principles you're talking about with like they're just being a sheer like huge number of homeless is that even in rothbard's 1992 piece there is no and then what right rothbard was so tired of everything in his old life he's gonna become a grumpy old man just like ah just get rid of these you know annoying people this year he didn't even bother to say the end of what he literally said, I don't care what happens in the consequences. Like, okay, so this is one of the you know greatest thinkers, you know, in the 20th century. And all of a sudden he, 1992, he's like, yeah, I don't care what happens next to me. And this guy wrote volumes on all kinds of other stuff. So it, it was, to me, it was very weak thinking. It was very expedient, you know, cutting corners philosophically for the sake of an expedient. End. And I, th I think that that was um, not good, you know, for a capstone to his later years in his work. But I, I think that, it's something that needs to be overcome through helping people see what the alternatives are, you know, showcasing what it is, just like in any other type of endeavor, you know, where the government's monopolized something, you know, when it comes to the post office, you're like, how could we have posts? And like, you have FedEx, you have DHL, you have UPS and many other countries today, they don't have a monopolized post office. They have competition, right? Like a Chinese, yeah. even the Chinese government doesn't have a monopolized post office. They have a post office, but it's not monopolized. So people don't typically use it. They use a private service. So it's just it's just a matter of saying, hey, hold on, chill out on trying to rely on the state first. Ask yourself first, okay, is there something I can do without doing that that both is empathetic for people in the situation, right? Because obviously people are concerned. That it's a concerning thing when you have people pooping in yeah. the street and whatever and stabbing themselves and wonder if they're going to attack you. I've seen it firsthand. I've been I've seen the homeless in, in D.C. I've seen the homeless in Seattle. I've seen the homeless in L.A. myself firsthand. I've been to all these places and I've <laughs> experienced the homelessness up close. I've seen it myself. I walked through it. So I get it. It's 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 unpleasant it's, and it, it can be concerning. But in order to fix that, you can't rely on the institution that caused all this. Created the, the problem in the first place. Yeah. Right. It, exactly. They, they want this. The, the, the Democrats in these cities love it because they have a certain select number of crony uh, not-for-profit corporations that have a kickback cycle. So they fund these guys to get their tax write-offs and they get the, them to say to all their, you know, charitable donors, Hey, vote for this guy. Right. And it's, just, it's a, it's this vicious cycle of all this money being pulled into their select crony benefactors. Doesn't really matter what the exact outcome is. In fact, to not even have a good outcome, like, or, or to fully clean it is the best because then they have something more to still do. So they, they keep doing this, the circle, never filling the problems because they don't want to, you know, that's the whole point. They need their reason for existence. They need the problem that they can constantly right. solve in the boogeyman. So, you know, I can get into a whole bunch more other stuff, like in the comparisons of, you know, comparing this to the C word in that language or, or just silly things. Like I think about like how, you know, outside dogs might poop on my sidewalk, like a coyote pooped on my sidewalk. Well, I have to clean that up, right? I have to take personal responsibility. If a bird poops in my car, it's not a homeless person, but I don't have control over that. And I can't call the police to say, hey, go arrest that raven. It pooped on my car. Like I got to go run it through, <laughs> through the wash. You know what I mean? So there's times well, that- Birds aren't real anyway. Right. So I mean- right. <laughs> Yeah, that, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's one of those things that to me is like, yeah, it seems like a big problem in the moment. It could be frustrating, but you got to take the emotions aside for a moment and say, okay, it is uncomfortable, but how do we fix this? 
without increasing the violence of the state, without increasing dependency on the state, and worst of all, in my opinion, without making it seem like government is the ethical solution because the, that's the biggest danger and yeah, across the world. Governments use public works projects as their selling point to say, see, we care about you. We provided you with this, like, you know, in North Korea, they have a ski resort that they use for international tourists. It looks like it's from like 1980. And all the people there are literally like crying, like, oh my God, Kim, Kim Jong-un, he's so great. He he gave us a ski resort. We'd have nothing without him. Oh my. And it's you watch it and you're like, holy crap, these are brainwashed. But Americans yeah. are just as brainwashed as the North Koreans because they're like, yes, oh my God, my roads. I, without the government, I, we wouldn't have any of this stuff. But that's how it works. They obfuscate by, by monopolizing. And when you excuse it, you don't give an opportunity for market alternatives to show, hey, this is a lot better than what the government's trying to offer you. So, you know, that gets lost sometimes in the emotion of it. But it, it, I just cannot emphasize how important it is for cultural change and for getting people to get out of that cycle of statism. Yeah, no, I, I agree with a lot of that there. You know, I, I think, you know, Rothbard's are allowed to be wrong. I think a lot of the people that were quoting that that Rothbard quote, uh, and then people be like, and listen, like, I mean, I'm I'm a Rothbardian. I mean, I I love I love Rothbard. There's there's not, you know, I, I think as you said, one of the m most brilliant thinkers and libertarian contributors contributors of all time. Um, but you know, he's he's had some mistakes in his in his thinking in his writings. You know, um, a lot of the people that are um, pr like pushing his point here about uh, unleashing the police and you know. 1992 wouldn't agree with his take on children <laughs> and the relationship between parents and children, you know, uh, <laughs> and the idea that parents own their children, but, uh, and also don't have any incentive, don't have any, um, what was the, what he said? They don't have any, like, like they, 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 there's, how do you, how did he put it? Like ch parents are not required to take care of their children. I think was like the point he made. That was like you can't force a, a parent to take care of their children, basically, mm -hmm. and it's a it's their right to you know like well parents shouldn't harm their kids, but they're also like could abandon them, and that would be a you know at least like okay in a libertarian sense. It might be mm -hmm. oversimplifying what he said, but it was something along those lines. Um, but it was very uh, and it was it was a very brutalist take he had on mm -hmm. the, the relationship between uh, parents and children and what the, the you know the rights of children were and comparing them to property which like on one hand yeah like the children are mine in a sense that like you know it's sort of like you know it's immoral for someone to take my children from me but to call them property is just a i don't know too, too clumsy of a word and it led to it can lead to some very serious errors so people will point that out very often as like an area where they disagree with rothbard and i disagree with him there and i also disagree with him on this one um again in conversations with people you know, sometimes you make concessions, right? And it's like sometimes with someone you go, like they're not ready to go, oh, we need to just completely privatize the police and the police are are of zero value to society. So you go, you give them something. You go, okay, you know what? We need police for uh, someone breaks into your house or uh, uh, if there's riots in the street and they're burning down, you know, people's businesses and stuff or for, you know, people pooping and dropping needles in parks you give them that and then focus on like okay but here's all the ways that police are a problem and you know you you focus on those things first or you focus on, on other areas where because like you, you sometimes it's like when you're trying to persuade people over time there's this negotiation or at least that's what you know some people i think are just always gonna have to proclaim what is true 
And then there's those of us, and I do a lot of this, where it's like you meet people where they're at and you make concessions with them, but try to push them that like, you know, one step closer, every conversation to challenge like, you know, if you try to get people to take the red pill all at once, not everybody's going to do that. Sometimes you you need to, you know, smash the pill up and, you know, every time you see them, it's like a little, like, you know, you're just diluting their drink a little bit with just a, just a little bit of that red pill just to, 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 to push them along the way into opening their eyes over time. Um, but yeah, I, I agree uh, with, with pretty much everything you said there. Um, and, and to be fair, uh, Dave was saying, well, we should do both. We should use the police in the here and now, but we should also, of course, push privatization as, as the true long-term solution. And it's like, I want to be fair to him, Like he, he, he was saying privatization is the answer and, and, and uh, free market alternatives are good solutions that we can give. Um, I think the problem is if we spend too much time, uh, you know, like, like time is a scarce resource, right? And energy is a scarce resource. Um, the less we put into promoting privatization, you know, the, the, and the more we put into propping up why the state is necessary or why police are necessary, um, you know, we're, we're just hurting our, our efforts to, to, you know, wake people up and deprogram them and make, and make the world more free. And, you know, one of the things I love about Dave is he's in the business of waking people up and he's very good at it. You know, as, as somebody who's been woken, woken up by Dave Smith, I can say, you know, he, he's very efficient at it. Um, and, and I get you want to meet people where they're at and be empathetic. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I think it is um, a lot better to, to focus on the ways where we can solve this problem without uh, increasing the police. Someone made a comment uh, that. Austin, Texas didn't need any of what I was talking about earlier, like increasing the police to reinstate the camping ban. Um, I looked it up very quickly. Uh, the current homeless population in Austin, Texas is like a little over 2000. Um, it's gone up a little bit from 2015 when it was like a, around a thousand. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, that, that kind of pales in comparison to the numbers in LA. So, I mean, I, again, if it's a small to me, I would, I would, I would wonder how much of a problem it was in Austin with those numbers compared to other places. Um, your mileage will vary. Um, you know, just like a broken clock is right twice a day. Um, occasionally, the state will do something, maybe like semi-effectively, but uh, that doesn't mean that's what, that's what we should uh, prop up and normalize as as what our ideal solutions are. And um, I think the more that we can show people uh like this is an easy way i think that we can show people how free markets work there's a lot of areas where the state creates problems and maybe it's not as easy to create free market solutions but this one i think is pretty like it's not hard to uh you know like you know in, in my county alone which is not like a huge city so i'm sure there's more options in cities and stuff there are so many private alternatives to parks we have like indoor uh like uh play playgrounds that are like set up like they have like those uh big um bouncy houses and they have trampolines and you know it's like a, like with and it's almost like a, like a free to use not free to use but like a free room like mini gymnastics kind of setup um where where, where kids can run around and play and, and stuff like that yeah yeah, a little, a little bit like that, but kind of geared towards like younger kids, you know, like like um, not not 
extreme stuff. Although like they have a section for like they have like um a, like a warped wall kind of like Ninja <laughs> Warrior kind of section too, which is cool. So mm-hmm. um you know, but and that's cheap. It's like you can take uh, I'll take all three of my kids there for like I think eight bucks a visit, which is like uh, again like not not hateful to take three kids there for eight dollars. Um, uh, it's been worse because of COVID because before you could go and just spend as long as you want there. And now it's like, oh, you can only spend two hours and they're limited hours. So, you know, there's some problems there just because they're bowing to the regime, but it's still a great alternative. There's also uh, a place near us that's like an, uh, it's called tiny town. And it's like this indoor, like pretend city uh that like people go and there's like a pretend doctor's office a pretend grocery store a pre- pretend houses and and uh and then there's like a little playground area with slides and stuff and um there are there are mcdonald's and and fast food restaurants that have right. parks in them that are for you know for, for, you know playgrounds in them that are free to use there's so many options out there um and uh yeah, trying to rely on the state to solve the problem, like in the areas where it's a problem, it's caused by the state. You know what I mean? The homeless problem. Um, so uh, I-, I just think this is such a great opportunity in these areas to be like, yeah, it sucks that the state is, you know, causing this problem, and it sucks that you can't take your kids to this park. And uh, look at look at all these free market alternatives that are like way better. I mean, I mean, just in my area alone, where again we don't suffer from maybe uh, as much of the damage from the state as maybe in, in places where local municipalities and state governments are are, are larger. Um, our public parks kind of suck. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're not well up. They're not well up kept. Uh, they're always dirty. Um, the, the the equipment's really outdated. A lot of it's sometimes like borderline unsafe. Last public park I took my kid to, the uh, swing set. When the when like when we started to swing on it, like the back pole was starting to like uplift out of the ground, <laughs> and uh, you know, so it's like they don't upkeep these things. Um, you know, if something happens on them, like some kind of altercation, there's not a really good resolution for that. So, um, yeah, it's just I even without a homeless problem in my area, I don't like taking my kids to public parks. Um, so, and I'm not rich, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I'm, I'm middle-class, I guess. So I'm comfortable, but I'm not like rolling in the dough. Um, you know, these places that I take my kids to are not, uh, they're not high end Gucci places that only the, that only the, the rich elite can take their kids to. Yeah. I'm all lago you're going to. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, I, I think it's one of those things where you know i want to get your thoughts on this like i feel like sometimes libertarians were we're so isolated and we're always in op like we're, we're, we're we spend so much of our mental energy in opposition that i think some people especially people that have been at it for a long time guys like they've been at it for a lot longer than i have um it can be easy i think to just be like m- mental fatigue to be like ah, i just you know uh am i really gonna like it's like maybe some kind of subconscious thing where you're like, oh, am I going to say the state, it's always the state's the problem and the state is never the solution. And so they try to find ways, I think, and it's almost like you're attempting to maybe appear reasonable to mm-hmm. non-libertarians or you're just tired of always being contrarian. And so you pick something that you think, oh, well, here's an area where I would use the state. Just And, you know, it's like, uh, you know what I mean? Like maybe that's part of it mm-hmm. or, or something. Um 
you know, I've caught myself going that way a a few times. Um, One of my biggest pet peeves is old people driving cars. Mm. Uh, I have been in three auto accidents in the Mm. past uh, six years, all when I was driving with my wife and like two out of the three times she was pregnant. All three of those times we were hit by somebody who like should not have been driving. Like they were, they were so old that, and, and their senses so dulled. Uh, one of them literally hit us three times. Like they hit us. And then like, we started to like, okay, they hit us. We're going to pull over. Uh, they, they drove and hit us again uh, as uh, we were pulling over to the side and her, she got out and she went, I kept trying to drive forward and I didn't understand why my car wasn't moving. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, wow. You know, sometimes I'm yeah. like, uh, you know, we, we, we can't just have like, you know, we need more. Sometimes I've like in my frustration be like, we need more restrictions on people driving. And, you know, we should have mandatory tests when people hit 55 and then <laughs> 65 and stuff to to make sure they're still competent to drive. And yeah. on one hand, I actually think free market regulation would maybe have something like this, like a better way to for people to demonstrate they're competent on roads especially because, mm-hmm. you know, privatization would create more incentives for uh, the owners of those roads to maybe, yeah. like, make sure there's not, like, major hazardous risks caused by, you know, people who don't have any business driving on them. I mean, it might vary by area, but I, I could see potential uh, uh, ways in which the market might produce that. But I'll get so, like you know, especially when, like, I've been in three accidents and in, in a short period of time and I have young kids and stuff, I'm like, ah, the state needs to crack down on this. Um, <laughs> so like, uh, you know what I mean? That's an area where like, I've been, you know, uh, hmm. you know, a little bit too quick to maybe want state intervention, but I know that the state would screw that up. You know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. uh, th- 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 that would end up being like an extreme invasion of privacy. Um, uh, you know, it's like, Oh, you're 55, your senses have dulled. And if they can say that for your ability to drive, it's like, oh, well, you're 55. Should you really uh, have the ability to carry firearms anymore? Right. Like at your age, is it really safe? You know what I mean? Right. Like, so there's so many ways that we don't realize that, like, we we give the state a li- an inch and it's a precedent for where they'll eventually take a mile. Definitely. No, I completely agree. And I, I think... um just tying back to like the idea of like solutions outside the state and like, you know, what would happen otherwise. I think one hang up that a lot of people have when it comes to these topics is that they've already channeled their idea of what should be based on what the, those in the government have set. And to uh, tie that in specifically to, you know, topics we've been talking about. One example is just like the idea of using police. Like why is it that police are the institution or entity that is even dealing with things that are not involving like something that's, you know, ethically criminal, like violating the body of property, another, you know, theft, murder, rape, and so forth. Why are police dealing with traffic accidents? Why would police be dealing with, you know, homeless and stuff like that? Like to me, it's like, you like, why can't something be imagined that is not police in terms of solving the problems, like just something other than police, whatever it may be. You know, whether it's private market or even the government, just the idea that someone who doesn't have the force and power to make arrest deals with the situation. And instead of, you know, people who are charged with the ability to use deadly force and have qualified immunity, right? Like even that just little like, hey, you know, maybe maybe a different grouping of government workers should handle this and and not police. 
right? Just something like that is is such a leap for people to be able to think about because the government is so good at getting people to only imagine structures within what they predetermine. And that includes parks themselves, right? People often think like, hey, this is a park. And it's like, yeah, but why? The government told you it's a park. That could have been a shopping center. That could have been a preschool. That could have been, you know, a clothing store. That could have been a rehab center. That could have been a car dealership. You don't know what else it could have been if people were actually able to choose in the market what was best. You assume it's a park because the government told you this is a park, right? So the breaking through those types of psychologies that are forced onto people by the government is also just as important uh, because we understand the idea that government hides the economics of the unseen and the opportunity costs with forcing a choice, you know, where they take your money and choose the solution is. And then people, of course, then fight over what the government's doing, right? Because that's the government wants, right? Oh, I'm going to vote for this politician because they said they're going to have, you know, cheese stands at the parks. I'm going to vote for this politician because they said they're going to put a swimming pool at this park. And you're just battling each other over this, you know, scarce resource that's being told it's public, you own it. And it's a total lie. And it's meant to always get people fighting and angry at each other instead of like, wait a second, this needs to end. Like the government should not be setting up these false constructs for people to fight each other instead of pointing out the thieves that are taking your money to force you into this artificial fight. <laughs> so, you know, I think getting out of those psychologies that is forced onto us by the government is just so critical as a first step to helping people exit the paradigm that, okay, this is the only way things can be done. This is the, you know, this is the only way that you could have these things provided. Otherwise it's just chaos and anarchy, ah! you know, like, so it, it's just one of those, those ideas that you have to sit down talk with someone and be able to show the alternatives and get them to think, Hey, what could be possible? And I, you know, I do that all the time when it comes to different jurisdictions, whether it's states, United States, or other countries where there's differences in legislative schemes, whether it's saying, hey, homeschooling is illegal in this country like Germany, but it's not illegal in this state where you don't even have to register the government to say you're homeschooling, right? What's the difference? How do, you know, how do they fare, the families and stuff like that? Are they all just the homeschooling families just like all strung out and like poor? No, like, you know, it's just, so you have to be able to bring in that reality because the government wants to obfuscate reality. And the more the government gets to obfuscate reality, the easier it is for them to sell themselves as the savior because they have the Hegelian dialectic problem reaction solution. They create the problem, right? They get a reaction from people and then, ooh, we're going to have a solution. Oh, and conveniently, the government gets more power and we get to control you more. Huh. How did, you know, so surprising. How'd that work out? Right. So, yeah. you know, just not buying into that cycle is, is just such a big thing. And I think that's why it's so important to do that even with people as you said before normies who are like oh my gosh like privatization this but it's like you gotta like explain through example and talk to them about real world examples bring it to the table and say hey have you heard of bryant park in new york city let me tell you a story you know that kind of thing yeah exactly or it's like you don't even pick an argument with them just be like oh yeah it sucks that this that these these parks have these problems and just focus on like don't even argue with them just demonstrate right. to them like hey you want to come with me uh, my family and i are going to this you know uh, private indoor park uh, next week. Come with us. It's a lot better. You know what I mean? Right. And then people just kind of like, you don't even have to argue with them. They'll just go, oh, wow, public parks suck. But these private right. ones are great. And then they just, you don't even have to argue with them. They just get into that mindset. Um, you know, one area where I, I, I feel like there's a kind of an exception, although I just avoid the problem entirely by homeschooling my kids. But 
insofar as kids are sort of forced into public schools and like you can homeschool them, but that is harder for like, it's easy to avoid public parks. It's a lot harder for everybody. Not everyone's in the same financial situation where Mm -hmm. they're able to homeschool their children. And, And I'm sympathetic to that. Insofar as kids are forced into public schools, I do feel like, okay, like maybe there's more of an argument there, although schools typically hire private security and stuff also too. So uh, I'd prefer the state to hire and the the public schools to hire private security than to have, you know, on-duty cops. I know my school had on-duty cops, but they were worthless. You know, our, we had, we actually had an incident in our school once and the cop was worthless because he was so uh, fat. He couldn't, chase after and stop the the incident from happening so you know so socialism always uh creates inefficiencies and sometimes that's in the allocation of resources and sometimes that's just uh you know the the resource itself just sucks (laughs) right Uh, uh, you know an overweight cop that can't run more than 10 feet without uh, losing his breath isn't very helpful um but uh you know so if there's an area where the state forces you to, to to be there Maybe it's somewhat fair to say, yeah, the state should, you know, make that such that environment safe, especially if it's an environment where uh, ki- kids are going to be. And you know, again, it's like I'm sympathetic to, like, you know, I I have kids, and um, if I lived in areas where these these you know uh, these issues were more prevalent, um, you know, uh, I- I'm sure that I might be even more sympathetic, but. Um, yeah, I mean, prevention is better than cure. Uh, public schools are just such a mess that it's like every possibility that you can explore to not put your kids in there, you need to explore <laughs> is is my ideal solution to that. Um, but I, I get that it's tough for everybody to to do so. But that's why, you know, um, I don't know. I, I, I almost wish and maybe something exists that I'm not aware of, but, uh, you know, maybe libertarians need to do a better job at like crowdsourcing uh, funds and resources for parents to make it easier for them to to homeschool their kids. Um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there, there's there's ways to do it without having to invest a lot of money or necessarily a lot of time. Um, it's not necess- It's like it's not like you have to sit there for eight hours a day and teach your kids. Um, I've started to homeschool my kids now. Um, my oldest is six, and you know a, a lot of it is pretty hands off. Um, but it, it's tough. I mean, everyone's in different situations, especially if you're a single parent, I know that's even tougher. So, um, you know, there's, there's not always perfect solutions, but, um, but yeah, so I don't know. What what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So I like uh, talking about the public school example for a lot of reasons because public schools, right. Is, is a great example of security theater with the reality of government brainwashing. And, I think about the safety and security and what happens now in reality, right? The government says, oh, safety and security. We'll put up a gun free sign. And just recently, there was the Oxford shooting and a 15-year-old shot and killed four students and injured a bunch of others, right? So when you go to public schools as it is now, the government makes them giant targets. They disarm the people there, leave them wide open to be attacked, you know, by, you know, anybody who wants to come by because nobody there has the means to defend themselves. And then at places where they try to beat up the security, as you notice with, you know, SRO, student resource officers, you come into the two most common problems, which is one, they're incompetent 
like you just mentioned, the guy who couldn't chase down people, or at a worst case scenario, look at uh, the shooting uh, down at Parkland, where the officers just ran away and sat outside while Cruz murdered a bunch of people, right? What good was that, right? They just sat outside, ah. and then when the parents sued, the police department, the courts ruled, oh, well, they don't it wasn't have to protect you. Right. They said it wasn't their job. <laughs> it wasn't their job. Isn't that funny how that works? Government security, their, their version of security right. is put a cop there who, now what do cops actually do more realistically when it comes to students? The whole school to prison pipeline. When police are there, they're, you're going to have more likely of a chance that a student is arrested for what should be a teachable thing. In other words, it should be something that doesn't lead to arrest, but it's something, you know, obviously something that might need discipline for an independent harm. Again, not tied to like not doing homework. So I'm saying like when it comes to someone hurting somebody else, this, that, you know, the police presence guarantees that children are now getting records and criminal records. And I've seen this because I've been a criminal defense attorney for juveniles. So I know this firsthand and I've seen it firsthand. I've actually worked with kids who have been arrested at schools and at secondary, um, you know, uh, you could say second chance schools um, and in juvenile detention halls where they actually have school. While they're all in orange jumpsuits, which I've seen that also firsthand. So when it comes to the nature of school, you know, it, it, you're not sending your kids to a safe place in the first place. You're actually putting them in danger. So you can't yeah. really make something more safe that the government is intentionally making not only unsafe, you know, uh, you know, absolutely unsafe when it comes to, you know, the, the actual uh, attacks and coming from the outside, but on the inside as well, when it comes to bullying and when it comes to how in issues are handled, uh, you know, so then we can get into the idea of what the nature of schooling does, which I'm sure, as you know, quite well, that's just one giant socialist indoctrination program. Yes. And not to mention the bullying and the shame from teachers and forcible grading um, and what takes place is, you know, kids' creativity is eroded and they're shamed out of, uh, you know, coming up with their own initiative because they just have to follow what it is and obey and obey and obey so they can get good grades or they're not going to be good enough to get into honors. They're not going to get to be able to play sports. They're not going to be able to be looked at as, oh, they're one of the smart kids. And I, I've watched this because I've been a public school teacher at an 8 high school and at a charter school uh, K to uh, 8. Um, and I've also been a substitute teacher at a bunch of different schools. My dad was a 30-year school teacher, actually an inner city school teacher as well. And I've been to that school when I was younger as well. So I've seen this on a wide diversity of, of cases um, in terms of like being firsthand in the situation. And the, the, the fundamental problem is that it's just a, an absolutely unsafe place to send a child. Like you cannot fix a, pre, a socialist brainwashing prison and make it more safe. You're, you're, you know, you're lipsticking a pig. Right. Oh, they're a little they like, no, you know what I mean? And then you have what's even more crazy, right? Which you know very well of when you have literal communist Antifa teachers coming in, like actual commies saying, yes, we're going to come in and indoctrinate your kids. And they're trying to bring in CRT, right? To create, you know, race class division stuff. I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's just like, whoa, hello. This is, this is not a place you want to send your kids under any circumstances. And I guess, again, I understand that for some people, they're in a rock and a hard place because of finances. And stuff. I totally get that. It's not, you know, it's not that I don't understand that, but I can't downplay the very real reality that sending a kid there is a sentence of trauma, abuse, lifetime shame and dysfunction that will last for the rest of their lives. Like you are hurting them by sending them there, there, whether you realize it or not. And it, it's, it's really, you know, painful that so many people have had to uh, face that choice. You know, the government has made it so difficult for people to afford things with the inflation and with property taxes and, you know, taking your school money, whether you go to school or not, and, you know, literally 
wasting everything on wars on drugs, you know, wars, drugs, wars and drugs, everything. It's just it's it's maddening. And it should be that level of, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. But unfortunately, some people just want the band-aid. They want the then, eh, you know, we just we gotta beautify the park a little bit. We gotta, you know, at least at least maybe CRT not always taught in schools. Like it, it's just silly. It's it's like you need to get your kids out of there so that they actually have a future. Because whoever's left in there is if you know, if they don't get fully brainwashed, they're gonna be extremely tom- traumatized. And if they're brainwashed, they'll be traumatized and brainwashed. <laughs> so it's like it, it really is is tragic and it really it makes me mad but that's how come I'm so passionate about it and that's how come I take an active role of helping parents get out of there and I do that actively I all the time I literally through what I do with on a teacher stuff like that I talk to families I connect them with homeschool defense league I give them the resources for unschooling I you know show them how to do on you know Sudbury Valley schools or Sudbury schools or umbrella schools and things like that I try to help parents have resources that they can feel comfortable to make their way out. It you know, takes time. And teachers too. I help people who are in there and they said, you know, I left because I could, you know, you're right. I can't keep doing this. And I, you know, I just try to encourage people and say, Hey, I get it. It's tough. But the only way you're getting out is if you start saying, okay, I have to get serious about this and actually make a plan of action to get out. Otherwise you're going to keep making excuses and just pushing it off, pushing it off until you say, okay, you know what? This is not right. I need to get out and start planning an exit. You're not going to make it. And so that's why, you know, I, I don't, I don't dance around those kinds of issues and say, yeah, yeah, the whole, you know, I'm worried about a crackhead, you know, in school, like making their way. And I'm like, I don't care. Like this place is unsafe. You know what I mean? They're more likely to get shot up by some mass shooter than, you know, some crackhead coming on in and like, you know, stabbing them with, you know, a needle or something. It's, it's, it's just that, you know, ridiculous. So, you know, the more shocking, I think that sometimes you are when it, when it comes to communicating these principles, like again, radical principles, the more people have that trauma, you know, that's kept their walls up, get shocked enough to where they like start to unravel it a bit. Right. Because again, if you're so used to just the same old, same old, you know, status brainwashing the media, you can kind of brush off, you know, halfway takes that you might get in the mainstream. But when you get taxation is theft, public school is prison, abolish the ATF. Right. And you're like, Whoa, okay. What, where's this coming from? Right. You can't unsee that. It suddenly is a thought process that you have to then challenge in yourself and say, wait, why? No, that's not right. And then think about it, right? You wouldn't get that otherwise. You know, in school, they're like, hey, if you were president one day, how would you control the economy? All right, write a a five-paragraph paper and make sure you have a good conclusion that restates your (laughs) thesis about how you'd be the best president ever. I mean, it's it's so crazy. I'm I'm there. I live it. I still do. I own a tutoring company. I, I still see this stuff going on. So oh, you know, it's 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 something that it's irredeemable, and it has to be dealt with irreverently for people to get it. Yeah, like I said, maybe maybe the solution is we need. And I, I know there's. I'm not saying there aren't people out there doing it, but we just we need. I think we need. This is an area where we need more people getting involved to to provide more resources, more aid more maybe homeschooling groups in local areas and stuff um so yeah i mean it's definitely uh yeah i agree with you i mean <laughs> I, I, I i'm sympathetic again to the people that are in situations that are between a rock and a hard place but uh um reach out for help there are people that are willing to help you if you're in that rock and hard place i would you know uh you know heck I, I, if you're listening to this right now and you're having a hard time like you know, financially or with time, it's like, um, I can't give much, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll contribute, uh, you know, 30 bucks a month towards, towards whatever, you know, you need to help make it 
easier for you to, you know, to, to do it. Or if you want the Ron Paul homeschool curriculum, I'll try to hook you up with that. You know what I mean? Which is a great resource to help take things off your back. It's like, you know, I, I would rather, you know what I mean? Like if your if your problem is money, your problem is time, like, like reach out to people and ask for help. Cause nobody wants to see like, you know, uh, your, your, your children being put in that situation. Like, I don't want to see people putting their kids through public schools. And I try not to shame people about it. Um, Cause I don't think it's the right approach. I think we just need to offer help and say, listen, like you don't have to do this. You might feel like this is your only option, but there's a whole, like there's hundreds or thousands of people in the Liberty movement who are, who are there ready to help you uh, not push your kids through this, you know, mentally, sometimes even physically traumatic experience. Um, I went through something where, I mean, my life could have ended up very differently. I got lucky. I got into a fight in high school, um, which I almost got arrested for. Didn't get arrested, but I did get, char- I did get charged and I had to, but I was like a first time offender. So mm-hmm. they put me through like one of these stupid, like uh, first time offender, re- re- like re- remediation programs. And uh, which, as soon as I like met a probation officer and I looked at my case, they were like, you, you don't belong here. Like, why are right. you here? Yeah. <laughs> like you're a waste of my time. <laughs> Cause like, I wasn't even in a fight that I picked. Like I, uh, not, not me, not really. Like the story is, uh, there was a guy who pushed down a girl who was like, uh, in my school who had some kind of disability. And I don't really know what it was, but like, she's one of the, the students that like, had like those like um uh, those poles attached to her arms to help her walk and she had a like a teacher aide with her a lot um especially when she was younger so she was always in my class and like i i didn't really know her very well but like i just i saw her around just from being in the same schools for you know 10 plus years and you know as she was in high school and stuff she didn't need the teacher aide around all the time but she still had a disability and uh you know, one day I'm walking to class and I feel something hit my leg. I like, what the heck? And I turn around, she's on the ground. And I'm like, what happened? And like, she's like in shock and crying. And then friend next uh, guy next to me goes like, uh, this guy pushed her down. Hmm. I went up to him and I was like, did you push her down? And he looked at me and laughed and kept walking. So yeah, I, I, uh, implemented a little bit of street justice and, <laughs> and, uh, grabbed him and went like, you know what the what the hell's your problem? And uh, one thing led to led to another, and uh, words were exchanged, and then his nose got broken somehow. And uh, you know, I won't say how it happened, but my knuckles hurt afterwards. <laughs> and <laughs> um, yeah, wow. uh, but it's like you know, he got detention for pushing the the, the the disabled girl on the ground. I got suspended for two months and put through this stupid remediation program. Wow. And yeah. It was just like, yeah. That's what, just what, a quintessential example, though, there of exactly what to expect in that environment, which is that the people who actually stand up for others who are being abused, who are, you know, in a, a tough situation themselves, they're the ones punished by the, the school yeah. department pipeline. But, you know, the people who actually hurt others and are the bullies, right, they get passed over. And this happens so much. I mean, time and again, it, you know, the person who's a boy, they just move them around because they don't want to deal with the situation. So what they just, you know, move them school to school, move them class to class, whatever. And if you fight back, oh, well, now you're the one who gets in trouble. You're the one who, you know, I was I was lucky that I had good grades and that I was a first time offender. 
Yeah. Um, like, like it was like, oh, you're an honor roll student. And so I think it, it almost, it was like, oh, well, you're usually a good subservient, right. you know, mind puppet. So exactly. this was just a glitch in the system and you won't do it again. <laughs> you're Whereas <a> like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Whereas if I had been a troublemaker with a, right. with a history, it'd be like, oh, well you need cracked out on. Right. <laughs> so, and, and in all those cases, I'd say having, you know, worked on this both, you know, directly with students um, in the, the teaching side and in the juvenile defense side, you know, by and large, all these instances too, where someone is dysfunctional or violent, you know, it's not coming out of nowhere. They're, these are kids who are coming from broken homes. They're themselves yeah. facing abuse, neglect, starvation, and whatnot. School is not making that better. It doesn't change their home life. It doesn't help the parenting. It only adds on more stress to the kid who now, in addition to having a crappy home life, has to meet these progressions and meet these grade marks, or they're also a bad student and unworthy and remedial, right? Instead of actually fixing that. So it just adds on more stress and more opportunities to get into trouble while not actually fixing the thing that actually affects the rest of their performance in school. Not the performance in school is, is something to be admired here, but rather just that whole idea of, oh, you want them to do well and be a good student, but the things that are affecting them, the divorce, you know, the the parents being absent, um, possibly getting beat up on by siblings and things like that, seen it all, you know, that's affecting them, but that's not being addressed. And, and they're like getting graded just like the kid who has a two parent household and they have lots of money and he has a great bed and they have great food and they have great times out and their parents are supportive. They're getting graded on the same thing. Yeah. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane to me. Well, I almost feel like uh, there's like a comparison I'm thinking about in my head. It's like in the same way, welfare programs have sort of like created this, um, this, this malincentive in, especially like in like communities, like the black community, where you see incredibly high rates of like single motherhood, broken families um, and, and stuff like that, because there's incentives, you know, financially, they're acting upon you. I, I feel like public schools create, an incentive structure that uh, leads to more parents being uninvolved in their kids. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, it's like, you know, the, the state is taking that off your hands. It's this right. weird, like welfare of you having to raise your kids and be in, and, and be a parent mm -hmm. for your kids. It's like, Oh, well you don't have to raise your kid. Like you have to raise them just to their five. And then the state does it for you. And you're more of like a, Oh, I feed them in the morning and at dinner and like I, I just babysit them on the weekends and they go back to the where they spend most of their time you know mm -hmm. what i mean it's like it, it's I'm, I'm not saying that's how parents think about it but no, that's yeah. kind of the incentive structure of it <laughs> so some do i mean some you know some, I mean, do. some do yeah They're glad to be like oh get my little brat out of here take him right i've seen yeah it. and, it, and it's it, that's you know it's it's really tragic um but you know all this the whole you know the whole system is <laughs> built to ensure that everyone is stigmatized and segregated according to obedience, so that the most compliant and pliable make it to the top of the schooling system so that they can be selected for their compliant attributes, you know, when they go to college or get jobs and stuff like that, or, or go to the government, right? And then those who are divergent, that is, they choose or for whatever reason, you know, are not able to meet the demands, they're shamed and shunned, even if you have a very high IQ, right? So you could have a, you could be very intelligent in terms of your natural like thinking speed. But if you're like, hey, I'm not going to do the homework, you still get a C. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter, right? You don't turn your work. Oh, okay. So, you know, it, it's, it is purely about willingness and ability to comply with whatever a teacher dictates based on their terms. And in some cases, how much you can suck up because everybody knows, you know, 
there's some kids that they suck up to the right teacher and the teacher's a little more gracious, you know, with, oh, you know, they'll bump that up. Okay. You know, or who can be squeaky wheel the most, right? I've seen that too, right? You, you get a parent who's more involved with a kid and they squeaky wheel. They're like, no, come on, please. Let me do a lecture. Let me go. So yeah, they don't That's have that. Support. They don't make well, it. Well, and you know, there's a correlation between this and the, the, the topic that we were talking about, which is like, you know, public schools probably are a major contributor, uh, you know, among many, there's many different reasons for homelessness, but public schools ill-equipping people for life at least plays mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a major role in that equation. You know what I mean? Like if, if public school actually prepared you with the kind of skills to be competitive in the marketplace and to take care of yourself, uh, you know, there would at least be a decrease in the likelihood of people to become homeless. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, a lot of people, especially in the areas where you see this as a problem, what happens is like people leave public school, they aren't ready for life. They're convinced they need to go to college to be ready for life. So they go to a university, get into mountains of debt, get out of that. They're still not ready for life. They still don't have any kind of marketable skills or understanding of how to, you know, be an independent functioning human being. And they're in areas where they're very rent controlled, uh, very, you know, a lot of different zoning laws and stuff make, and, and different things create a very high cost of living but that's where they think they need to live because it's part of I was like, oh, well, this is the safe place where everyone believes all the same things that I do. And everywhere else is filled with these these filthy heathens that, you know, th that are, uh, you know, against the science or or they're they're fascists and Nazis and all this. And so they live in these areas. They, you know, now it's like they're depressed. They get on to maybe some different, you know, maybe maybe. Doctors prescribe the medications, which then lead to them trying more, you know, non-usually prescribed medications. They get addicted to, to different harder drugs. Like there's a lot of correlations and ways in which you can see these things playing into each other. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're all interconnected. But it's like mm -hmm. the the odds are, though, the more you rely on the state to keep your kids safe and and uh to, to give them a good life and to help them be successful in life, uh, the odds are not in your favor that that's going to work out. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's teaching them to, instead of think about things themselves and to conversate, which is a big, you know, very important part of a young person developing their ability to think is the ability to ask questions of others, think about what someone says, take it in, ask further questions and, you know, reflect and go back and forth. The, the schooling paradigm uh, largely erodes that because a lot of it is authoritative person. Here's what you need to know. Shut up. You need to, you know, you need to focus when I say, when I say it, that's the most important thing for your life right now. You know, don't question it. Don't bother me with saying, why can't we do something else? You know, no, we're not going outside. Do the, you know, do this worksheet. We got, you know, this much time before the, the state or the district test. And it's it just, it's so sad. It's its such a sad. You know what's really sad is how much of like my uh, older extended family or just like sometimes like older people at, at church and stuff think that my kids are rude. And I'm, mm. I'm not saying that like, you know, they're, they're not always the most gracious in their delivery, but, but the, the motivation behind my kids asking questions and not listening to things isn't, Again, I'm not saying they're, they're the most gracious. Sometimes there's a little bit of like a, maybe like a little bit of a mischief. Uh, I don't know, like a, a a bit of a like rebellious attitude to them to some extent. But I think most of the time they're just like you know questioning things, which right. is natural. Which is just like 
you have to beat that out of kids <laughs> and then they go through life just listening but like when you right. don't beat that out of kids um they're very inquisitive and they right. want to know why yeah. you know things are happening they want explanations for things yeah. and that's not them being rude most of the time or a lot of times when I think kids are rude, it's because they've become very emotionally frustrated with the fact that they're not getting answers. Mm -hmm. So it's like for a while, it's like genuine intellectual curiosity when that need is not met and they're shamed and, and um, disciplined unfairly for mm -hmm. having that natural intellectual uh, curiosity. Eventually right. that turns into a bit of a defiant attitude where they're just like, Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'm not being given good reasons for why I need to do this. So, you know, now my questions are coming with a an anger and a, a rebelliousness out of it, which is, you know, kind of natural. Um, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So like my yeah. my kids don't uh, like sometimes I, I've been told, like, oh, your kids don't listen well. It's like <laughs> my kids, my kids listen very well. They just don't blindly obey to ev like everything. Like, you know what I mean? Like, which right. is. Now, if it's an emergency, they will. Or like they can tell like if something's serious, you know, they'll, they'll usually listen. But, mm -hmm. you know, if I ask them to do something or if I tell them not to do something and then my kid doesn't listen right away, but, in, like, you know, they're not throwing a fit or anything. If they just kind of like ask questions about why they shouldn't do something or why they should do something. And then sometimes I'll even go, hey, you know what? That's a that's a good argument there. Maybe maybe I was wrong to tell you to do that or not to do that. Like kids are not stupid. <laughs> they sometimes have, you know, sometimes I've caught myself just telling my kids to do something because that's just what I was told to do as a kid. Mm. And then when you take a step back to think, huh, you know, there's really <laughs> nothing wrong with what you're doing. So uh, right. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I feel like a lot of times just kids are annoying to people um, mm -hmm. because they uh it's the mindset of a, of a kid to sort of like push against barriers, but we live right. in such a, a, a society where we're, 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 I think the problem is like, we're all dealing with trauma of, mm -hmm. of, you know, statist indoctrination that's taught us not to be that way. And right. so it's, we don't want kids to be that way, but that's, that's part of what makes them successful and, and intelligent. And people right. are, it's just amazing to watch with my kids, people be simultaneously annoyed with my kids when they're like, you know, asking questions and not just like, you know, being, being good, little obedient, like, you know, you know, d d jump, you know, when, when I say jump, you say how high, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, you know, my kids aren't like that, but my kids are incredibly intelligent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't even have to, like, when it comes to homeschooling, mm -hmm. I don't even have to convince my oldest to, to, to do homeschooling. Like mm -hmm. he wants to learn things. Right. He yeah. chooses what he wants to learn. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's just like, right. you know what I mean? And, and, and I would tell you, like, like he's really interested in biology. And so like animals, uh, ta taxonomy, uh, how, how different animals do things, different processes and, and, and traits they have. He's really into dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, we went to a museum, like a state museum where they had like, you know, dinosaur exhibits and animal exhibits and stuff. And at the dinosaur exhibit, he knew more than the actual museum worker there wow like there was like you know you know, he was asking he was like do you know what this skeleton is and the museum character was like oh i think that's a and my, and my son was like no that's a parasaurophilus and he's like is it and she's like oh you're right and it's like <laughs> that's <laughs> it's like, too funny 
And right. then, luckily, the museum worker was yeah. like very gracious about it. Like they good. didn't get all defensive yeah. or anything, um, which was which was good. But it's just yes. like like kids are just sponges, and if you yes. let them just like you know, again, you you provide a little bit of structure, you know, mm -hmm. keep them safe, uh, you know, give give. But it's like you know, they they just need a little bit of guidance mm -hmm. and to not, uh, you know, to to not raise them with these uh, these abusive. Uh, tendencies, whether it's spanking, whether it's public indoctrination from 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 schools or whatever, mm -hmm. and and they can really soar. Um, and you know, so pre prevention is better than cure. Um, we won't have a lot of homeless people in the streets if we just do a better job at raising the next generation. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, homelessness by and large, you know, is is riddled with a history of trauma and abuse. You know, there's almost always going to be some story of something that happened, usually early childhood, uh, sometimes later in life if it's traumatic enough. You know, it could be a divorce and a job loss at once, as, as Bob Murphy talked about. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, getting to the root issues is so incredibly important. And to me, that is the greatest empathy you can have. You know, looking at the symptoms, sure. This, you know, there's many discomforting symptoms that we have because of state violence, but without getting the empathy to the root of, you know, what the actual nature of the state violence is, the indoctrination, the brainwashing and the harms people face because the government has literally stunted people's philosophical growth. I mean, I, I, I say this often, I'm just encapsulating it all as it is space age technology that we have and we have like stone age philosophy, right? Yeah. We have the most incredible technology, go to freaking space. And people are still thinking, man, I can't imagine how these roads could get built if it wasn't for the government. And I mean, it's it's that wild because you don't have that without the government working so hard with so many different programs of disinformation, brainwashing, control, and trauma to stunt that growth that would have happened if it wasn't for the government doing that, because it was happening before that in the 1800s with literacy rates rising and people becoming more intelligent generally. And, you know, general IQ rate rates rising with political stability to the 20th century and having better nutrition and so on and so forth. Philosophy should have had that same evolution, that same exponential curve. Oh, yeah. They stumped it for so long that people don't even know that. And now we're seeing it. Me and you, we are in it right now. We're in the beginnings, of that exponential curve. We're in that never before seen like oh michael malice and joe rogan are in a podcast and oh and there's alex j who you know i don't know, don't get, you know those two words together on the show <laughs> and luke radowski and blair white and and you know tim pool and they're all talking about how bad the media and the government is this is unreal this is, this yeah. is like what this sounds like a comic book story or something for libertarian right, yeah. right? like, you know it's like wait what like 20 years ago you'd be like what the heck jeff dice was just on fox news he's, you know he's been there multiple times you have mosh going on there you have spike cohen going on kennedy talking about things we have international liberty groups you know doing activism in africa and argentina and brazil we have you know massive events with thousands of people in attendance at freedom fest pork fest tom was 2000s i mean this is like you know a miraculous this is incredible this yes is, you know, unreal and people are still like i don't even know what to do with all this liberty stuff it's so, there's so much i don't get you know it's like how you know there's there's like every type of libertarian like a, like it's a video game like redhead libertarian Hispanic <laughs> libertarian bearded libertarian libertarians with guys asian wise right it's like right yeah so much. <laughs> jewish libertarians 
But, <laughs> that, but that's the thing. This is, it is an explosion. We're in a renaissance. We're in the midst of the beginnings to this 21st century intellectual renaissance. And we are just facing at this point in time the greatest tyranny of the remaining people who are, you know, basically the uh, children of the 20th century eugenics movement who are still trying to carry out their plans, you know, their Malthusian plans for reducing the population, offing people, getting more control over everybody. We are fighting that. We're, we're at, you know, the greatest cusp of liberty is fighting the greatest cusp of statism of all time. There's never been this great level of statism in terms of yeah. government so powerful and so rich. There's never been this, this many people who are like, oh, that's what it means to be libertarian. Okay, respect people's bodies, you know, don't take from them. Okay, non-aggression principle. Like, we never had this. Like, never had this. This is this is wild for human history. You know, unless there is some crazy ancient aliens thing, right? No. But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> you know, for what we actually know as best as we can, right? This is this is unprecedented. We're in an unprecedented cultural battle. So I think people should be taking heart and not, you know, in any way being shy from doing radical things and talking radically like that there is this is the time to do it like now is the time to be like yeah i'm getting my kids out of public school yeah you know what i'm supporting the mises institute i'm going to support the mises caucus i'm going to you know help out with voluntarism and action for someone you know who needs help getting it you know out of school or something like that whatever it is like now is the time to support those promoting liberty to take action yourself and to say hey how can i not you know, involve the state in this, how can I think outside the state? And if more and more people do that in what they do best, their fields of interest, what they're passionate about, we're all going to win. We're all going to, you know, end up in a great spot despite all the despotism. So that, you know, that's just my call to action with like anybody who's, you know, worried about like Twitter battles or infighting. I'm like, this is nonsense. Focus on actually trying to educate people in ethics and economics. Take actions that you are in control of, that you don't have to beg for permission from someone else. What can you do to support private alternatives? What can you do to live more outside the state, right? What can you do to help raise the next generation for liberty and, you know, have them actually have a peaceful parenting home and have them be able to learn about ethics and economics so that they can become self-sufficient and take care of themselves and not be like, oh my gosh, I stubbed my toe. I guess we need socialism, you know, that <laughs> level of identity. <laughs> it's like, it's like, we're going to get there, but we have to keep working on it principally and radically and actively and openly you know and it's 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 changing so as you've seen you know at least yeah. it's podcast <laughs> <laughs> no i i agree and you know I, I think it's a great way to close this out i mean i i think that i'm incredibly optimistic about the future um you know it's easy to focus on a lot of the 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 really awful stuff that's happening but um i think as i think you're right i think as things have gotten worse in some ways um it's like when things are sort of like in that middle it's hard to wake people up but when 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 the, when when uh, i think the reason why there's like that expression that like uh the, the night is dark is just before the dawn it's just like um I, I think how that plays in here is just like things have to hit a certain point of bad to get people to to see the bad um and and um you know, so the the matrix is starting to collapse, and people are 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 waking up to the truth. And you know, some sometimes the truth is uncomfortable, but at the same time, it's like when we see, uh, you know, how much freer we'll be if we, and how much better our lives will be if we uh, abandon the the notion that the only way to do these things is through these violent 
uh, coercive monopolies, um, uh, you know, and and through abusing people, abusing people. And I mean, basically, like, you know, I, I draw such a connection between peaceful parenting and statism all the time because, like, there's really no difference except on scale between parents spanking their kids to force them to comply with what they're telling them to do and what the state does to all of us. And it's like, we kind of have to normalize the peaceful parenting in our own private lives and build that out to, to every interaction in, in human life to where we don't use violence as a means of getting people to do what we want. We use free markets. We use persuasion. We use voluntarism. We trade with people. We negotiate with people. This is the foundation of a peaceful society and, and, and a society that uh, where you're going to have the highest amounts of of well-being and, and humans, um, you know, living their lives to the fullest. So, uh, yeah, 100% agree with with everything you said there. Um, well, we're. We're, we're, we're coming up to a close. Um, you got anything you, uh, coming up? Uh, I'm sure you do. But what, what stuff do you have coming up that you, you want to uh, promote before we uh, head out of here? Well, I mean, yeah, I, I don't have anything um, coming up in the short term. I kind of have to uh, uh, deal with all Christmas and famine and other stuff like that coming up, you know, at the end of this month. But next year, yes, there will be some fun stuff. We're going to be doing... Uh, the music video for I Do Not Consent, Florida Man. We'll probably record five or six new more new songs at least. Uh, we're going to be throwing more events. We did some events last year, range events, stuff like that. We're going to be, you know, hopefully hosting a bunch more uh, this upcoming year. Um, and we're going to just be uh, looking to do, you know, as much creative, fun projects as we can and, and can fit in throughout the year uh, with those things. And then, you know, the big one will be the voluntarist final uh, issue for this arc, Voluntarist Origin 6. I plan on having that campaign and also turning um, the entire series into a trade paperback. I'm going to remake the first two issues, bring everything into cohesion, and then ha have it be a compendium, like a true graphic novel, kind of bigger book, trade paperback. So some ambitious projects, but all stuff that's, you know, fun for liberty and trying to create the cultural changes for when people arrive, you know, here, because that's a, you know, a big part of that is like, sometimes when you come to a new ideological space, um, you're like, okay, well, what, what's, what's fun in this town, right? What, what's the libertarian playground, right? right? For some people, you know, you know, originally there's like pork fest or I'll go to a Mises seminar, but we need more things than that. You know, we have all different types of interests and demographics and age groups. And I just think it's been mind-blowingly incredible to see things like Tuttle Twins, right? Multi-million oh, yeah. sales of books. It's amazing. Animated series. Like, what? Like, this is incredible. This is like, that's like Veggie Tales, but for libertarians. Right, now. yeah. Like, what? <laughs> like, it's like unimaginable things, like just mind-blowingly amazing opportunities for entertainment and education, and sometimes both, um, on a wide, you know, diverse range of, of of content materials and, and outreach. And I'm just, I'm floored. I, and I want to be a part of that. Like I want to do something that people love and want to support and that's worthy of it. I want to be worthy of, of, of being a part of that. But I just want to encourage everybody else that if, you know, if you have something that you have artistically to contribute or uh, intellectually or event wise, whatever it is, like go do it, man. Like time is short, make this stuff happen, you know, have libertarian or whatever, Liberty get togethers, have events, um, have concerts, you know, if you, you know, write books, make art, 
have some fun. So <laughs> move to Florida and uh, harass Tom Woods. Yeah, <laughs> right. Harass Tom Woods. Pretend it's his birthday. So, yeah, whatever. Oh God. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's just incredible. It really is humbling. Uh, having just spent so much time working on this stuff for years, you know, I mean, thousands upon thousands of internet chat debates <laughs> and memes <laughs> and events and everything. And just finally like coming out behind all that, where it's like just used to getting ratioed by commies and being made fun of. Right. And then the first they laughed at, at us and then they started to argue with us. Right. And then all of a sudden we're on that cusp of the winning. It's starting to change. Like, yeah, actually, you know, these people, yeah, they're right. Why are you stealing from me? Why, why are you tormenting our kids? You know, so my, my, well, my, my, my favorite one of those things is, you know, two years ago, like, ah, oh, the Mises caucus will never take over the LP. <laughs> like, you guys have no idea what y'all are up against. So I'm like, what do you, what, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, these people who they, they don't do anything. They just, they literally just complain. They stay in a poverty mindset, not a growth mindset. They, they don't want to grow and change or develop their skills and you know provide value and they they just want to shame people and control their in-group and it, it just was so sad to me like okay well mom, yeah but what matters is that lou, lou rockwell wrote a article about the mighty ducks 20 years ago and i'm still mad about that it's like right i mean that was a funny article i think i personally think it was silly but it's just one of those things where it's like okay so he wrote a stupid article and listen like, I, I i love I, lou uh, I love I Lou Rockwell, but he like Lou Rockwell is basically like your old crotchety grandfather of the Liberty movement. You know yeah. what I mean? Like every once in a while, your grandpa, he's just like, you know, at a family reunion and you're just complaining about something stupid. And you're just like, okay, grandpa, whatever. It's like, right. you know, but he still, but like, you know, Lou, Lou Rockwell kept anarcho-capitalism alive, you know, during a time period when like, it seemed like the ideas were as dead as they could be. And now those yeah. ideas are kind of going through a renaissance, like what you're talking about. Right. So, um, you know, it's it, it's silly. Some people, some people uh, only exist to critique and to try to tear down what other people build instead right. of building something themselves. And uh, you know, I, I try to keep a pretty wide variety of circles and, and friends in the liberty movement. I got people like I'm I'm obviously a Mises Caucus guy. I got friends that are like, ah, agorism's the way. I got friends that are like, oh no, we're gonna do the GOP. And you know, I got friends that are, you know, doing all sorts of different things. And it's like, you know, I have my opinions and disagreements with all them, but it's like, you know, at least do something. Like I can put up with almost anybody who has different dis disagreements with me if you're if you're doing something and you don't make it like your primary mission to shit on what everyone else is doing. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, right. I mean, you know what I mean, it's like you, everyone's going to have a different taste, different preference and whatnot, but like, just do what you think is best that you're, you're what you feel led to contribute to the world to, to create, you know, more, more Liberty and to push the needle in the right direction. Um, and, you know, focus on building and not destroying. Yes. Yeah. I, I agree by and large. I mean, I, obviously there's places where, you know, making critiques is appropriate if it's, you know, critiquing ideas or if someone like, you know, oh, you could only be libertarian if you have white skin, you know, where it's like, that's your whole thing. But it's like, you know, when people are talking about incrementalism, you know, or just different preferences for their personal activism, it's like, okay, who cares? Like, you know, do you, whatever, you know what I mean? It's like, as long as you're not physically harming somebody, as long as you're not saying, okay, we need the government to be our savior. And as long as you're not saying, oh, you know, you could only love liberty based on your race, you know what I mean? And trying to exclude other people and shame them out of being libertarians, then I don't care. It's like, 
you know. Yep. So, Agreed. Yeah. Well, hey, Jack, thanks for coming back on again. Uh, maybe you just plug your Twitter and any of your other, you know, handles and channels and stuff before we go so people know where to follow you at. Sure. Volcomic.com is good. That's V as in victory, V-O-L-C-O-M-I-C. So Volcomic.com, that's the main comic book website. I got a few other places, but it's just everywhere. So the other website would be like The Philosopher, T-H-E-P-H-O-L-O. So instead of I, like philosopher, it's pho, P-H-O. So thephilosopher.com. I mean, between those two sites, you'll probably find, you know, most any of my work or size projects eventually. I've been following uh, Pho and like, you know, like seeing the philosopher for so Mm -hmm. long that I literally (laughs) the other day, just like typing out the word philosophy, typed out philosophy. (laughs) Like it wasn't, it wasn't like a typo. Like I literally was like, this is how you spell this word. (laughs) It was like, it was like autocorrect. I was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I'm I'm glad it's had that, that impact. The other impact we hope is like, you know, people eventually think of us that we're like being paid off by like big pho. You know I mean, the Vietnamese noodles like is paying us like, yes, we're going to make everybody want to eat pho noodles now. Ha ha ha. You know, but uh, yeah, your, your Facebook uh, food feed is the best. It's like you go to like pho and you're like matzo ball soup. And then it's yeah. like, oh, fancy steak and it's just like uh, pineapple and pizza. I'm not a food snob. If I mean, I had a Kobe steak the other night, but I will gladly eat chicken nuggets the next day. Like I. You know, yeah. I just, everybody eats food. I just happen to take some pictures when I eat. That's all. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's all, it's all good. Uh, well, well, thanks again, Jack, for uh, coming on. It was a lot of fun. We'll do it again sometime. Thanks everybody uh, for watching and listening. And uh, until next time, don't fear the fire. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money.